Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as He makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com. Thank you, Jimmy, for introing the series. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, hi all, again, my name is Emmy. Uh, I've been at Missio for a couple of years now. I preach here on occasion, but it has been a while, so it's nice to be back. Um, and before we get into it, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the chance to gather this morning, that we don't leave our burdens at the door, but that you give us space to bring them into worship with us, Lord, that you see us exactly where we are. Lord, thank you for the chance to gather to praise and to learn this morning. I pray that you would be our strength and our guide through this season of Lent. Help us draw closer to you as we follow Jesus on the way to the cross. And help us to understand what it means to live a life more closely aligned with you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Something that is uh, kind of important to know about me, to know who I am, is that I have two little brothers. I think I have a picture. Yeah, look how cute we are. Um, and younger, they're definitely not little now. Uh, Andrew, I wanted to have a, a picture of a more recent picture of us, but I couldn't find one where someone wasn't in a headlock. So we just, <laughs> this is what we've got. Um, so Andrew is on the right there and Ben's in on the left, the youngest. And I feel lucky that I can say that my brothers are some of my very best friends on this planet. We don't talk super regularly. Uh, if you've ever had the misfortune of trying to get a hold of me via texting or the phone, um, you know that I am the worst. It is my dream to be reachable exclusively by carrier pigeon so that uh, weeks in between responses would be understood. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, that mindset also runs in my family, so we don't talk as often as we could, but we are close. So my brothers and I, we were also best friends when we were little kids. We technically all had our own rooms, but for the first eight or so years of my life, we all shared one voluntarily, stacked in with bunk beds, because who wouldn't choose a sleepover every night with your best friends? So storybook, adorable best friends as little kids, to best friends as adults, except for all of the years in between, we were mortal enemies, okay? We, specifically from the years that I started middle school to when my brother, my youngest brother, finished middle school, started high school. This was rough years for most people, by all accounts, but like, actually the worst. We fought all the time. I leveraged my age and slightly more developed brain at the time to be as dictatorial and high and mighty as possible. And my brothers relentlessly ganged up on me and made it their life's mission to aggravate me. My poor parents. We were menaces to each other and society. Which means that for the better part of a decade, my mother's main job was mediation. She would let us fight it out a bit until or unless we crossed a line, and then she would sit us down and make us talk it out and apologize to each other. And her favorite catchphrase was, it takes two to argue. So both parties would each need to apologize. And not just resentful, mumbled, like, sorry, but apologies plus an honest recognition of what we each did wrong. 
I'm sorry I stomped on your Lego Millennium Falcon. And I'm sorry I punched you when you stomped on my Lego Millennium Falcon. To be fair, this exchange was usually still a little resentful and resented, but it's remarkable to me now how much this practice of telling the truth about the argument and our own part in it ended up softening the anger on both sides. So this was incredibly formative for me. It trained me, for the most part, to approach conflict with an eye to my own behavior, my own part in things. And it took me kind of an embarrassing amount of time to recognize this as a biblical principle, one of the more important ones, I think, confession. And confession is a practice that has been, long been, deeply misunderstood and poorly practiced. Confession is something that most people associate with shame, with salacious revelations and cancel culture. I mean, look at the magazines in the grocery store or the gas station, headline after headline saying things like, so-and-so confesses to secret love, so-and-so confesses to secret abuse, so-and-so confesses to fantasy life. Half the headlines aren't even real, they're not even true. And the ones that are weren't secrets freely confessed. They were dark, embarrassing skeletons in the, in the dark, in the closet, forced into harsh light. And confessions are also something that we associate with crime and with war. Admissions of guilt forced or tricked out of people by law enforcement or in torture. These confessions are intended to be about justice, but they're not always. And they're not even always about truth. Sometimes they're just about blame. And too often, true or not, there's no reparation, reconciliation, rehabilitation offered. Confession in this context is something that ruins lives. It's not something we have much of a positive association, association with. And confession is also something that is somewhat infamously associated with the Catholic Church, right? A dark confessional booth with a priest hidden behind a screen who assures you of forgiveness and then tells you what you need to do to make up for all of the sins that you've just confessed to. Acts of penance. Confession and assurance of forgiveness go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. And the original intention of penance was good, I think. Encouraging changed behavior was a mark of starting down a new righteous path. But in the 16th century, this got a little extra twisted. And the penance prescribed by a priest was thought to earn indulgence. So indulgence is basically extra mercy from God, AKA less time and punishment in purgatory. And then the Pope at the time authorized the selling of indulgences. The idea was that you could pay money to the church and buy extra mercy to get out of some time in purgatory for yourself or to reduce the amount of time in purgatory for loved ones who might hypothetically be there. This took the practice of confession, which is commanded of us, and the granting of forgiveness, which is promised to us, complicates both of them and it profits from it. If that feels exploitative to you, it's because it absolutely was. And the Pope didn't base the selling of indulgences on any solid theological grounds, from what I can tell. Protestant, so I'm biased, but he wanted to pay for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And this happened to be a really convenient and really lucrative way to do it. 
If you thought you or a loved one would spend some undetermined but definitely horrible amount of time in purgatory, and you could pay some money for some extra mercy to get out of it, wouldn't you? The church weaponized this practice of confession, heaped on the shame and guilt, and added conditions to salvation, which was Martin Luther's take on the issue as well. So he nailed some objections, 95 to be exact, to the door of the church and started the Protestant Reformation. And Protestantism didn't necessarily fix confession or our understanding of it. It's been complicated as long as we've been human. And because there's such a wide range of Protestant denominations and understandings, it's hard to pin down the ways that this goes wrong. So I'm gonna give you two really generalized kind of ends of the spectrum. To start here, again, broad strokes, Protestantism tends to individualize sin and overlook communal sin, brokenness in society that we have contributed to as a collective. And the churches that are most focused on the sin of the individual often approach confession with a lot of shame. The sinfulness of humanity is emphasized over the power of grace. Going to church in these places feels like a weekly reminder of all of the ways that you are bad and unlovable and unworthy. And on the other hand, we have churches that almost deny the need for confession, the command to confess and repent. They speak of brokenness in vague terms and focus on the happy stuff. And the happy stuff is not bad stuff, but how can you accept grace if you don't have an evolving understanding of why you need it? There's more of a one-and-done mentality in churches like this. You accept Jesus as Lord and into your heart and you are fully healed. You now stand in the light as he is in the light. Done and dusted. And it strikes me that this would only be true if we were called to just stand in the light, in one spot, unmoving, safe. But we are called to walk in the light, to have fellowship with one another as the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Did you catch that? Cleanses. Not because the blood of Jesus cleansed us from all sin, and we're perfect now, but the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Ongoing, progressive sanctification as we walk in the light. The boundless gift of grace, available to us with only one condition, that we repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. So it seems to me that the churches that deal in shame and the churches that deal in denial are missing the point and they're leaving us in the dark. Think of it like this. In rising from the grave, Jesus plucks us out of our graves, set us on the path to light and said, follow me. But we are human. We are drawn to what we know. Familiarity bias is powerful. And there are graves on either side of that path. We've been there before. We know what the grave is like, how easy it is to step off and right back in. And you've seen it in others, you've seen it in yourself, I know I have. We will freely choose a familiar hell over an unfamiliar heaven until heaven becomes familiar. 
Walking in the light, casting off the shadows of our old self is a process of familiarizing ourselves with heaven. It is the process of becoming more and more like Christ. And confession is where we start. It's not something that we can disregard as unnecessary and it is not something that is meant to drive us to despair with shame. It is meant to bring our brokenness to light so that we can be made whole, so that we can have fellowship with others and fellowship with God, so that our joy may be complete. An old professor of mine talked about confession as the first movement of sanctification. And she said that the practice of regular confession is the embodiment of dying to our old self as we prepare to rise to the new. I wanna take a moment and acknowledge that this is kind of confusing. If you're like me, you're probably sitting there like, how? But why? Am I the new self or am I the old self? What does God see when he looks at me? Why do I need to confess the old self if Jesus got rid of that? Good questions, same. So I think about it in terms of clothes. In his dying and rising, Jesus makes peace between us and the Father, gives us his clothes to wear, white as snow, the most beautiful thing you can imagine. And that's what God sees when he looks at us. But he also sees that when we first receive this, the garment is too big for us. It's way too roomy. The shoulders are too wide. It's a foot longer than we need it to be. We're tripping over it. And we still have all of our old clothes on underneath. And as we walk with God and grace lets us grow, the old clothes start to get tighter and tighter and more uncomfortable and constricting, and they make it hard to move forward. So in confession, we come as if to the edge of our own graves and rip off those too tight pieces of our old clothes that are restricting our growth piece by piece. We renounce old habits and inclinations towards sin and we allow them to be buried. And we start to find that our new garment fits even better. We're growing into it. It's more comfortable than ever. But to do that, the casting off of our old clothes requires knowing what they are, knowing our sin. So what are the sins that we should confess? What is the content of our confession? A lot of ink has been spilled on this question and wiser people than me have a lot more complete answers than I do. So I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here, but this is what I do know. Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Calls it the first and greatest commandment. So anything that takes the rightful place of God in our lives, anything we have made an idol, be it pride, money, self-image, another person, our own comfort, these are things that we need to reprioritize or turn away from. And we need God's strength, God's strength to do it, so we go before God in confession. And Jesus goes on to say, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Loving our neighbor is actively desiring the good of people in our circles and outside of them, particularly the people that this world does not love. 
Actions that cause harm or hurt another, whether actively cruel or just passively ignoring, these are things that deserve to make it into our practice of confession. If you wanna know what you love, look at where you spend your time and money. If it's not aligned with the love of God and love of others, if it distances you from God and from others, you might have some soul searching to do. But know that you can do that in the safety of grace. For Romans 8, 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There is fellowship with God. And I wanna add just a tiny footnote to the second commandment. Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think love of self can get a little problematic. We are called to humility, but we're not called to self-erasure. So I think that there is an invitation here to see yourself in the light of God's honest truth, to see that by the grace of God, you are lovable and worthy and redeemable, which means that others are too. Yes? Okay, we've now covered current and historical misunderstandings about confession, theological reasons for confession, and broadly the content of confession. Thanks for sticking with me. And there's one more thing that I discovered this week that I wanna leave you with. The English word confession means an admission of wrongdoing or of guilt. The Greek word for confession used in this passage and throughout the New Testament is homologos. And it means something slightly different. Homologos means, literally means, to be of one mind. To agree and declare that something is factual and true. Which means that confession, in a biblical sense, is agreement with God. Confession is just telling the truth. And this is probably why all the creeds, the statements of faith, any declaration that Jesus is Lord is also called a confession of faith. There's no guilt or shame in this confession. We are just agreeing with God and telling the truth about what God has done. And in this passage, the word for confession only shows up once towards the end, but the whole passage is about confession. The first half is a confession of faith, a declaration that the word of life has been revealed in Christ, telling the truth about what God has done. And the second half is encouragement to tell the truth about ourselves in light of what God has done. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We live in a broken world and we are prone to stumbling. If we pretend that we don't, we're living in denial and we're not able to fully accept grace. We can't remember why we need it or what it does for us. And verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, if we say that we have no need for grace to begin with, we make God a liar, as if the cross and the resurrection were wholly unnecessary. If we say this, the word of life is not in us. And if we go to the opposite end of the spectrum and say that we are unredeemable, we belittle the sacrifice and the power of Christ. So confession is truth-telling which means that sometimes it is admitting guilt. God, I have wronged this person, help me to make it right. And sometimes it is simply acknowledging our limitedness. Lord, this world is dark and I am losing hope. 
Help me to fix my eyes on you, author and perfecter of my faith. These are both confessions. If we tell the truth about who we are and what we struggle with, he who is faithful and just will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and set us on the path to life. For God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Remember my mom's mediation rules? Apology plus confession. It takes two to argue. I think this practice worked so well because it required us, me and my brothers, to look at ourselves and tell the truth. Not my truth, that it was me who was wronged, and not my brother's truth, that I wronged him, but the honest fact that we both had a part to play. Admitting this allowed us to look beyond ourselves to the bigger picture, that harmony and fellowship is the goal, not clinging to our own self-righteousness. It takes two to argue, I think, still holds true as an adult it, in conflicts between people. But I want to caveat this by saying it does not apply in situations of abuse, gaslighting, malicious mi misuse of power. There are people who need more to confess and receive forgiveness and people that we need to confess to and beg forgiveness of. And the regular practice of confession is something that teaches us to do this well. To see ourselves and others in the light of truth and to pursue justice and reconciliation. We wanna be a community that has practiced saying sorry and receiving grace so that we can model that in this world. Because honestly, most people will read our lives before they ever read a Bible. So to that end, through this season of Lent, we are going to incorporate this practice in our services as one way to become more like Christ. And we're gonna use words from perspectives and people who have historically been sidelined or silenced. Our confession today, and probably for Sundays to come, come from an author named Cole Arthur Riley. She's a poet and a prophetic voice in this world who writes about what it means to be black and a woman in the world and, what also, and also what it means to be human in a broken world. She released this new book called Black Liturgies just in time for Black History Month. And so from this, this season, we're gonna learn from her perspective and wisdom. So to end, will you join me in this prayer of confession? God of truth, as we begin Lent, Help us to become honest about the ways our societies and selfhoods are marred by injustice, cruelty, neglect, and greed. We confess that we as individuals and nations have engaged in self-protection and delusion. We confess that we have played a part in the de degeneration of the world, but that we want to be part of its regeneration. Grant that as we push back evil around us, we might also admit those secret evils that dwell in us. Let this be a season when we reclaim the practice of telling the truth about our histories, that we would no longer lie to ourselves and others about the harm that we have caused by coddling our guilt and insecurity. Let our love be made of unapologetic truth-telling. Let those of us who have been gaslit find their stories centered and affirmed in this season 
guide us towards spaces that have grown weary of delusions and teach us to see the world in the light of your truth. Amen. And people of God, hear this assurance of forgiveness. Let your soul receive this rest. The God of truth sees you, hears you, and forgives you. There is no condemnation for those who walk in the light of Jesus on the footsteps towards the cross. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Missio Day Uptown Podcast. We are a church committed to our neighborhood, seeking to love and serve our beautifully unique community as we join God as he makes all things new. To learn more about us, visit mduptown.com.